I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Alone, a love story, and I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 14, Adrift. Scene of the Crime. October 2012. I'm walking down the street with a tall, smart musician. He's really great and we've been talking nonstop all night. Right now, we're headed to his apartment, and as we get closer, I realize something. Holy shit, we're walking right up to her place. Yeah, her. When I first found out my husband had been sleeping with another woman, I was obsessed with finding out everything I could about her. There wasn't a lot to go on, but the husband had let slip the intersection she lived at, and my journalist brain knew just what to do. I drove to that intersection. The neighborhood around it densely packed with houses, condos, lofts, and apartment buildings. I went to each and every building. I got in and out of the car, over and over again, looking for her name on the front door directories. And then, at an old mattress factory that had been converted into lofts, I found it. The way it made me feel, just to see her name there, I can only describe as a cliché. My blood boiled. I pressed the buzzer. It was March break, and because she's a teacher, I imagined her to be home, still sleeping, probably lying there beside someone else's husband. I pressed the buzzer again. Honestly, I had no plan. I knew if she said hello, no sound would escape from my mouth. I knew I would do nothing her voice echoing in the glass doorway. She didn't answer. I got back in the car and bawled my eyes out. I shook and cried the whole drive to work. I wanted to drink so badly. Now, seven months later, here I am, walking on her street with the tall, smart musician. There are tons of places he could live. No way it's going to be in her building. Oh, yes. Yes, it was. It's the biggest city in the country, and yet there I was, about to sleep with a man I barely knew, right at the scene of the crime. 
I decided to take it as some kind of a sign and resisted the urge to pick up rocks and hurl them at every single window until she stuck her head out. I resisted yelling her name at the top of my lungs. Instead, I went inside the apartment of the super nice, super smart musician. And when he gave me an orgasm, I made it extra loud, just in case. Then I did something I'd never done before. It was late, and tall, smart musician said I should just sleep over. Now I had a rule with men, no sleepovers, never. But it seemed right to break that rule, to sleep overnight in the very building where earlier that same year, my husband had spent the night, as me and our daughter slept in our beds at home. I wanted to take the power of that place away. So I did. I slept with a cat on my head that night, in the bed of an incredibly sweet man who's gone on to become a true friend of mine. When I walked away the next morning, I felt a little lighter. I had no impulse to buzz her door repeatedly or shout her name or throw rocks. I lit a cigarette and walked. Eventually, I hailed a cab downtown to my place, changed my clothes, freshened up, and went to work. It was a Wednesday morning, after all. Hot Actor It's Friday night that same week. I'm sitting on a bar stool in a very hipster bar in a very hipster part of the city. A friend of mine is DJing. Another friend is sitting on a bar stool beside me, talking to a guy, and I'm trying not to be rude as his friend talks at me, small bits of spittle hitting my face. The place is packed, but all the men look the same. Same jeans, same haircuts, same beards. I am so bored. I'm totally not getting laid tonight. What a waste of a Friday. In five days, I will be 38 years old. I hate this bar. I hate these guys. I hate the husband for throwing me out into this world to make a go of it alone. And then, the most gorgeous guy in the world walks into the bar, you could almost hear the angel chorus above the hipster din. It looks like the crowd parts for him. I wondered if he was some singer or a model or an actor or something. He comes straight through the crowd and holding my eye, edges himself in at the bar right beside me. He orders a drink then turns his shiny brown eyes back to me and smiles. I smile back, and he says, Well, look at that, and points to the tattooed words on my right wrist. Forza e coraggio. Huh, what's that like, strength and courage or something? Wow, I say. Yeah, that's exactly it. (laughs) 
Neither of us touches our drinks. We just sit there and talk about Italians and Jamaicans, about our moms and dads, our brothers and sisters, how we'd both grown up in little run-down towns side-by-side out by the airport. Remember this, remember that, we keep saying, as if we'd grown up together, which in some strange way it feels like somehow. We talk about our careers, and it turns out he is an actor. He's only in town for a few months, shooting a film. He's 27 years old, and smart, and articulate, and eloquent, and gorgeous. At last call, I say a thing I've never said to a stranger before. Do you want to come home with me? And he says, yes, I do. We get into a cab and go to my place. And although he's a total stranger, I'm completely comfortable with him. He smelled so good in the cab, I can still remember it. That night was a turning point. The point where I realized, I don't need dating profiles. I can do this in real life. I mean, if I can pick up hot actor, I can meet anyone. A few sweaty, incredible hours later, as we lay in my bed talking, I realized it was 4 a.m. Kid, why are you still here? Time for you to go now. I say it because I feel like I have to, because I always kick them out. But so casually, so confidently, he says, nah, what's going to happen is this. We're going to fall asleep talking, and in the morning, we're going to do all of that again. And then we're going to go get some breakfast. He kisses my shoulder and I say, okay, sounds good. Because it sounded amazing. And it was. Over the next several months, Hot Actor would come in and out of my life. He showed up at my birthday, and my friends and colleagues marveled at his hotness, and so he was crowned. We went dancing. We went for food. We hung out in my apartment. We had fun the times we were together. I remember one morning while I got ready for work, he just sat on the edge of my bathtub talking and talking. Man, he talks so much. He was goofy and gorgeous and always complimented me, reminding me that even in daylight, he still thought I looked 29. Even if it wasn't true, it didn't matter. And it's funny, but I had absolutely no romantic feelings for him. He was like my pal. You know, the kind of pal with a six-pack who I just happened to have sex with. And then his film shoot wrapped, and it was time for him to leave the city. We made one last plan to get together on a snowy afternoon at the dead end of the year. He came over and was his usual positive self checking out the globe and magnifying glass Bertie got from Santa, talking about his family and the presents he got, asking me how my first Christmas without my husband went, and then kissing me soft while leading me to my bed. Our goodbyes were sweet but unsentimental. It was just, see ya, and then one deep, long kiss, and he was out the door. That was the end of that. I've never seen him again. 
I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. PG-24. PG-24. An easy nickname, just his initials and age. Although, I never told anyone about him till now, and I never saw him again, so a nickname is useless in this case. Still, this is how I think of him in my head. A little magical secret. A mirage. You can't get more impossibly young than 24. I mean, honestly. But there he was, hanging on my every word. He was adorable, and funny, and smart, and we had a lot of tequilas. It was almost Christmas. Someone buys a round of shots, and down they go. He introduces himself. There's another round. We talk about music, and it's so easy to impress him. He works in a record store and thinks he knows everything about music, but I best him more than once. My knowledge of Springsteen albums, of all things, is the clincher. But I keep walking away from him. I'm in a fog of booze and this strange internal cocktail of high confidence and low self-esteem. I'm amazing and pathetic. I feel real and invisible all at once. The world is underwater for the reggae soundtrack. I'm trying to dance with uninterested men my own age, but PG-24 is beside me again, asking why I keep running away. I give in to the underwater world, the tequila in my heart. We leave the bar. Let's go to your place, he says. We can't. I have a kid there tonight, and my mom's with her. He looks surprised and then says, Well, we'll go to mine, but it's not very nice. It's kind of a mess. I laugh, and he takes my arm in his. We talk and walk, the December air strangely warm, no snow on the ground. And then we turn onto his street. Oh my God. It's the very street that I lived on when I was his age. Only three doors up from where I lived with my boyfriend, the musician, 14 years earlier. The universe was indeed mysterious. Holy Lord, I'm drunk. How is this even a thing that's happening right now? My new life still astounds me. We walk in the door and a group of guys are in the living room packing up instruments. I feel like I will die from embarrassment. Surely in the bright lights of the house, they can see I'm a hideous old lady. Surely they can see that their friend made a drunken mistake in a dark bar. But they're friendly, and he's excited to introduce me. I'm mortified, but try to play it cool. They're in a band I know, 
really well. I love their second album, but I don't tell them that. I can't believe I'm in their house. PG-24 takes my hand, and we climb up staircase after staircase to the attic room at the top of the old house. His room is like a dream, like I'm floating in my own youth, like I've gone into a wayback machine transported to my 20s. The unmade bed, the Christmas lights strung haphazardly across the ceiling, the milk crates for furniture, the David Bowie and Smashing Pumpkins posters on the wall. I'm in heaven. Like so many of the babies, PG-24 does not disappoint. At 4.30 a.m., I say, I have to go. He watches as I put all my clothes on. I tell him I had fun, that I'd never see him again. How do you know? What if I want to see you again? But I shrug at the suggestion. He'd served his purpose. He helped me make it through another night. Now he'd be a memory of a time where for a few hours, I forgot I was a grown-up, with all its attendant responsibilities and heartache. I like to remember the two of us sitting on the beat-up old couch on his front porch, waiting for the taxi to come and take me back to my regular life. How he lit me a cigarette and kept looking at me, kept smiling, kept his arm around me like I was his new girlfriend as we argued about which Springsteen album was the best. Darkness on the edge of town, obviously. When the cab arrived, I ran down the path shouting, See ya, PG! Saying his full name like one name, as I'd done the whole night. Goodbye, beautiful dream! He called back. As the cab pulled away, my head swam from the tequila, lack of sleep, and the general giddiness from the experience I just had. I rested my head on the seat, smiled and closed my eyes for a bit, arriving home at 5 a.m. At 7.30, my daughter and my mom were both awake, crashing around in the kitchen. I woke up too, and went on with my 38-year-old life. The Bad Ones I'm not telling you about the bad ones, or even about how sometimes the good ones can be bad. In this story, I'm only telling you about the sweet and memorable ones, the good in bed ones, the ones that didn't hurt me or scare me. Almost all of this story was written as it was happening, in the time before the Me Too movement. This is important. In that less woke time of only a few years ago, I was like a lot of women. I didn't report the bad things that happened to me on dates, or at work, or in life in general, starting way back when I was a little girl. It was just a normal part of life, a thing to get around or get past, a thing about being a woman, just status quo. So in the time after the bomb, the time I'm telling you about, 
where I meet handsome young men and have wonderful and wild experiences. Some of those experiences were not wonderful. They were not all easy. But I didn't write about the bad ones in my notebooks, where I always write everything. It's like I erased them the minute it was over and I was back on safe ground. Sometimes I didn't walk away from the bad ones. There are millions of articles you can read now about why so many of us do that. And still, even now, some of you wonder, why don't women say anything? Why don't women just walk away when things are clearly getting bad? Why do women sit through a bad experience and then text the guy, thanks for the date, even after they were treated terribly? I'll tell you why. I just figured there was no point. Or it was my fault for going on a date in the first place. Or for being drunk in the first place. Or for being single. For being a woman who likes having sex. For being a woman with low self-esteem. For being a woman whose husband had an affair, and now here I was in some messed up situation with some messed up guy I just met. And phew, good thing I fought him and got out of it. Good thing I thought of giving him 50 bucks so he would finally leave my apartment after I physically fought him to stop having sex with me, which he did, but then refused to leave, yelling at me for changing my mind until I came up with the idea to give him money to get the hell out. But report it? Why would I report it? Talk about it? What would I say? That another time I drank a lot and went to the home of a man I barely knew and then halfway through he got crazy and not in a good way? That he was one of the smartest, most interesting men I'd met after my marriage ended, but he was also the one that held me down with his arm across my neck. He wouldn't stop, no matter how many times I yelled at him to get off me. It was like he was in a trance. He was a big man, and I knew I'd be no match, but eventually I said, so quietly in his ear, I will fight you. That worked. I don't know why. But did I report it? No. Did I write it down? No. But I remember. I remember that for some reason, I sat there on his bed and talked with him for another half hour about religion, soccer, true love, and the concept of forever. And then he walked me home and kissed me goodnight. And this all seemed perfectly normal to me somehow. This all seemed to be just part of dating. This is what it is to be a woman who goes out on dates. This is what it is to be a woman who enjoys sex and wants sex, but doesn't have the safety of one committed partner. When this story takes place, I was resigned to a sad truth that to be a single, sexually active woman meant sometimes things are great, and then here and there, things get really bad. And those times, I just suck it up 
and keep living and keep on dating and keep waiting for a unicorn to come along and be my boyfriend so I wouldn't have to roll the dice anymore. So I wouldn't have to take the chance that a handsome, smart, awesome guy I've been getting to know might hold his arm across my neck and say, not yet, every time I yell at him to get off me. There are so many stories like that I could tell you, and so could we all. Each one of us has a lifetime of stories. A lifetime of being chipped away at, and then if we speak up, being told not to be so serious, or that we can't take a joke. If we speak up, then we have to sit and listen as our own experiences are explained back to us handed over like corrected proofs. So we stay quiet. And then we're told we're complicit. It's our fault, really. So this is all I'm going to say about the bad ones. The best thing we can all do now is listen. Listen to the actual lived experience of women when they do try and say something about it listen. Just fucking shut up and listen. Orphan Christmas The girl with the blue dreadlocks is intent on telling me she totally gets me. I don't know what she gets because I haven't even said a word. She's sitting beside me on a long bench with our backs up against a wall and we're in a little dive bar in Kensington Market where everyone's wearing black and covered in tattoos and drinking a lot and the music is punk and loud and I don't really know anyone. It's Christmas Day, 2012. What I haven't said at all to the girl with the blue dreadlocks is that this is possibly the most surreal experience of my life. That to be here on Christmas is about as far from who I thought I was or where I thought I would ever be. For the past 11 years, I've spent Christmas Day with my husband and his family, the last five of those with our daughter. That she's not here with me now is something blue dreads cannot possibly understand that I'm not with my own little girl on Christmas Day makes about as much sense as me being here in this bar on Christmas Day. But as if she does understand all these things I'm not saying to her, Blue Dreads puts her hand on my arm and just holds it there. She smiles at me with a quiet kindness. I look at her face, and for a second, I think she looks just like Bertie. If Bertie were a 20-year-old girl with blue hair and a nose ring. I turn my back to the overwhelming room and look outside. The snow is falling so hard that footsteps disappear in minutes. It's like a deep blanket, and I briefly wonder what it would feel like to just go out and lie in it. I contemplate how the fuck my life could change so much in one year. 
blue dreads still has her hand on my arm, and she's saying something, but who knows what, the music is so loud, and I'm lying in a snowdrift anyway. You're listening to Alone, a love story. Written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC original podcast. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. I've got a lot more to share with you at cbc.ca slash alone. The stories behind the story I'm telling, photos, and a lot about music. Stick with me. I want to tell you about getting advice from an ex-husband. Hey, there's another CBC original podcast I want to tell you about, Sleepover. Imagine listening in as three complete strangers spend 24 hours together trying to help with each other's problems. It's a compelling social experiment guided by the awesome and adventurous Sukian Lee. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Alone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.